0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, do you please uh, turn uh, with me to Ecclesiastes chapter four, page six hundred and seventy, the reading that Jody read for us just a moment ago. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope one day you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. I imagine that most of you recognise those are the imaginings of John Lennon. And I quote them this evening because in a way, in a way, they're not so far from the research of the teacher, the author of this book, Ecclesiastes. Imagine there's no heaven, above us only sky. Verse 1, the teacher is looking at life under the sun. Imagine no possessions, nothing to kill or die for, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. As the teacher looks at life under the sun, I imagine that he would see where Lennon was coming from. He wouldn't agree with him, but he'd kind of see where he's coming from. For in chapter 4, the teacher sees the heartache of, of broken relationships. Because in this world, people don't live for others. They walk all over others. They are driven by the need to keep up with others. And all that ruins life. So just imagine all the people living in peace. Imagine a world where we look out for each other. You may say I'm a dreamer, but wouldn't it be great if we lived that way? And wouldn't it make sense of life if we lived that way? Well, in our chapter today, the teacher looks at relationships. And indeed, the the warped relationships that are so prevalent on planet Earth and, and so often ruin life. On planet Earth. He begins with the thoroughly wretched relationship between the oppressed and the oppressor. Do you see it there in verse 1? Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Seeing people oppressed is very distressing. We might see it on the television news. Being oppressed is miserable. But as bad as it is, oppression is here to stay. You won't find a time in history past when it wasn't an issue and there will never be a time in the future when it will be a thing of the past. Oppression is such a terrible thing but no one can deal with it once and for all. You see verse 1, the oppressed have no comforter. Well hang on you might say, what about those who've been set free from evil regimes? What about aid agencies and UN peacekeeping forces? They bring comfort to the oppressed don't they? Well, for sure, aid agencies can alleviate some suffering, and we thank God for them. And they do have an impact on some lives, and that's not insignificant, but they don't eradicate the problem of oppression once and for all because no one can. Watch the news, and it's the same old story. Bring freedom to the captives of one area, and another is devastated by the ravages of war or a corrupt government. Begin to make progress in South Africa, and Zimbabwe is wrecked by an oppressive dictator. Take action to free the people of Libya, and then the the plight of the Syrian people is brought to our attention. Recent events should have taught us that in some situations, even all the might of the United Nations of the world cannot bring comfort to the oppressed. And besides, one man's view of liberation is another man's form of oppression. Ask the people of Iraq or Afghanistan do they feel liberated or occupied? Depends who you ask, doesn't it? And what's more, the issue of oppression is not confined to those nations that are controlled by evil dictators or blighted by terrorist organisations. We, we need to hold our hands up and, and acknowledge that there's so much in our so-called free democracy that falls foul of the same criticism. Isn't that something of the agenda of the Occupy movement? Well, I'm... I'm not naive enough to think that everyone who set up camp on the streets of the world's cities have pure motives. And we may not agree with their approach, but still we cannot pretend that this issue of oppression that the teacher raises here is something confined to communist governments or Arab dictators. A capitalist system is far from innocent on this issue. Despite the monopolies commission, there are some who, verse 1, have power on their side. And they don't use it well. Ah, Look, it's a complex issue and not one that I pretend to understand, but we don't need to grasp all the nuances to see that the teacher's point is right. Oppression is rife in our world. Tyrannical regimes, totalitarian governments, greedy tycoons, all have a long and dishonourable history of causing heartache in whole communities or individual families. The actions of some leave innocent people, verse 1, oppressed, and with no comforter. And when your view of life is life under the sun, as we've seen verse 1, life as if this is all there is here on this little planet, when you view life under the sun, to be oppressed is an unbearable situation to find yourself in. Oppressed with no comforter, no deliverer, no one who can solve your situation. If you're born into that, what life do you have? And so the teacher declared verse 2... That the dead who'd already died are happier than the living who are still alive. I'd rather be dead. That's what he's saying. I'd rather be dead. I'd be happier dead than living under oppression. That's life under the sun for some. They're born into oppression. That's all they know. They'd rather be dead. If you have no hope of a better life, it may well leave you feeling suicidal, do you see? And that surely is why some people are ready to die for the cause. I'd rather be dead than live this miserable life of oppression. The teacher actually goes further, verse 3. It's better not to have been born at all, he says. Better to have never faced the evil of this miserable planet. That's the conclusion. If you're oppressed and without hope, I wish I'd never been born. Not that we're likely to feel it that acutely. Most of us, of course, know nothing of oppression. And even if we do feel this powerlessness, we always feel there's a hope, a way out, we, if we have enough money. See, have you noticed how money has become our God? We talk of money as our creator, as the creator. Be successful in your business and you're a self-made man. In fact, you know, money has made you what you are. Money makes you something, creating you. Win the lottery and you've got it made. We speak of money as the creator and as our saviour. We believe it will dig us out of any situation. We believe it will solve our problems, rescue us. Creator, saviour, and comforter. We talk about going comfort shopping, doing a bit of retail therapy. Creator, saviour, comforter, money is the new Holy Trinity, you see. Without even realising it, we look to money as a replacement for God. Life under the sun... As if God were not involved, live it that way and you'll create other gods to bring you the comfort you so crave. And when money is our God, our comforter, we've always got a hope. We're just a one-pound lottery ticket away from joining Millionaire's Row. Money can rescue us and comfort us and make us someone. Isn't that the plot behind the, the movie Slum Dog Millionaire? A young man living in squalor, one oppressed by the system, who has no comforter appears on who wants to be a millionaire and wins being delivered from his oppressive hopeless life see we think money can deliver us and comfort us so even if we are oppressed because there's always the possibility of winning a fortune we don't feel verses 1 to 3 as acutely as we should of course what these verses are really doing is, is showing it on a, on, a, on, a, on a worldwide scale there is always going to be oppression is what The teacher is really saying, whether you and I feel it or not, whether the individual feels it or not. Well, from the warped relationship of oppression to the warped motivation for achievement, envy. Verse four, and I saw that all labour and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbour. See, here is the desire to get all we can now, the longing to to keep up with our neighbours. Of course, when we feel how limited life is under the sun, getting as much as we can now makes sense. If this life is all we can see, then of course we'll envy those who have so much. Well, look at them. We want to be like them. We'll envy them. But here's the thing. Envy ruins relationships. Envy means we we don't look at people for who they are, but for what they have. And we don't consider those we meet as people to be loved, but as competitors, those to be surpassed, beaten in the game of life. And We call it keeping up with the Joneses or striving to improve ourselves. The teacher strips away all those acceptable sayings and exposes it for what it is. It's envy. It is envy, says the teacher, that causes many to strive to achieve you know, it's the thirst for more, the lust for better, the desire to achieve. Even if it means trampling on someone else in, order, in the process, the drive to be one-up. That's what the teacher exposes here, and it's in all of us. If the teacher were around today, I guess he'd look at 21st century Western economies and say that we're, we're driven by envy. Envy fuels the rat race and all its status symbols. Envy is behind what I like to call company car syndrome. Have you ever come across company cars? Well, you'll know what I mean. When I worked in the newspaper industry, success was measured by the size of your company car. When it came to the company car, size really did matter, and everyone was caught up in it. Want to know how successful I was? I drove a Mini Metro. (laughs) Uh, And it wasn't only about the company car. It was all about having a reserved car parking space in the company car park. And even better if you had your name on the car parking space. And even better the nearer it was to the main entrance of the building. Company car syndrome. The size of your car mattered. And it it wasn't just about the size of your car. It was about the size of your office. And even the upholstery of your office chair. How I longed for a leather chair. It's pathetic, I know. But but those things matter to people. And it's very easy to get caught up in it all. Well, in verse 4, the teacher says... All too much of our hard work is driven by a craving to outshine others, or at least not be outshone. One-upmanship grabs us and motivates us to be driven. And that results in self-centred lives. Lives that will put others down to push ourselves up, to work hard, to get up on the up, on the upward ladder. It is this envy that drives us on in the rat race, which is no way for humans to live. As one wag said, the problem with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. Envy, unhealthy competition, destroys relationships. At best, we don't have time for others. At worst, we stick a professional knife in our neighbour's back. Oppression and envy... Both ruin relationships, and thirdly, uh, a life of ease, or or rather, laziness. That's what's going on in verse 5, I think. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. And the fool uh, folding his hands is is the picture of the sluggard of Proverbs, uh, sort of folding his arms, if you like. It's a picture of doing no work. I'm not going to do any more. Done enough. Folding my arms. If verse 4 leads you into the rat race, then verse 5 leads you to slobbing around, doing nothing more than eating puddings. Sponging off the state and giving nothing back to the community. Something else that ruins relationships. But never mind what it does to other people. If you're lazy, it does you no favours. That's really the point the teacher wants to make in verse 5. The lazy person, do you see it there, ruins himself. Idleness eats away not only what you have, but what you are. It erodes your self control, your capacity to care, and in the end, your self respect. So some are driven by envy, trying to get as much as they can. Others opt out, slobbing around. Better is the middle ground, says the teacher in verse 6. Do you see it? They're better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil, than chasing after the wind better to have enough and be at peace with yourself than to have much and be restless. That's what he's saying. To keep wanting more is like chasing after the wind, which is, as we've seen before, the mark of the fool, because no one can catch the wind, only a madman tries. And so in verses 4 to 6, the teacher says it's foolish to be a lazy good-for-nothing, and it's foolish to be a greedy so-and-so. Instead, take the middle line, verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility. Have enough and be at peace. But how many of us are actually able to live that way? I often talk to people who, by their own admission and assessment, are caught up in the rat race. and, And they hate it. They hate the fact that they spend no time with their children. They hate the way their time and their life is dictated to them by their circumstances. They hate the feeling of always reacting and never controlling the situation. And they look wistfully over their shoulders at people who've made radical decisions to change their lifestyle, to get off the madness of the corporate ladder, to to take a less stressful job, to downsize, to, to get a life. They look at people like that and they wish they could do the same, but they find themselves unable to change. They're trapped Perhaps by an extravagant lifestyle that they've become accustomed to. Perhaps, verse 4, trapped by their envy of their neighbour. Trapped perhaps because it matters too much what others will think of them. We find ourselves trapped when we view life under the sun. Because if you live life under the sun with, with such a limited view of your existence, what else can you do than get as much as you can while you can to be as happy as you can? So do you see, life under the sun is full of warped relationships, ruined by oppression, ruined by envy, ruined by laziness, and then ruined by loneliness, verse 7. And I saw something else under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. See, here's the person who who works his finger to the bone, works all the hours God sends, works and works to get more and more, never content with what he has, always wanting the next gadget, the latest model, a faster car, a bigger house, working for more and more stuff, more of life's little luxuries, but working so hard he never has time to enjoy it and no one else to give it to. You see, verse 8, he had no son or brother. He was an only child and never married, so he couldn't even hide behind the excuse that he was working hard to provide for his family. He was simply never content. And then he woke up one morning and said, verse 8, for whom am I toiling? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Do you see it there? Loneliness is not just... Meaningless. This time it's a miserable business. Miserable meaninglessness. And there's many a person who's woken up to this when it's too late. Think of the words of uh, Freddie Mercury. He was lead singer with the band Queen. Hugely successful and very wealthy before his death in 1991. He said these words. You can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. And that is the most bitter type of loneliness Success has brought me world idolization and millions of pounds, but it's prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. See, things that ruin relationships are horrible. They're horrible because relationships are good. That's what the teacher says in verses 9 to 12. See, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can pick him up. But pity the man who falls and and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. See, he says that two are better than one. That two are better than one in work, verse 9. Two working in partnership have a better return for their work. Two are better than one when trouble comes, verse 10. If one gets in trouble, the other one can help them. Two are better than one in leisure time, verse eleven. On a hike, on a camping trip, uh, two can keep each other warm, may even keep you alive. And two are better than one under pressure, verse twelve. Being with one another, being with another can save you when you're attacked, do you see? Two are better than one, and end of verse twelve, three's even better. How good to be in good relationship? Relationships help you through life in work, in trouble, in leisure, under pressure. Imagine all the people living in peace. Imagine no possessions. No need for greed or hunger. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Be good, wouldn't it? So is that the point of life? Relationships? After all these weeks of studying Ecclesiastes and coming up against the same conclusion, meaningless, utterly meaningless, after all these weeks does the teacher finally cracked it here, Can the meaning of life be summed up in this slogan? He who has most friends wins. Is that it? No, says Barry Webb as he comments on these verses. He writes this Companionship has the capacity to sweeten the bitterness of labour and even to make some real returns possible. But like other good things such as eating and drinking, it's a conclusion rather than an answer. And to make his point, Barry Webb points to the last verses in this section, to verses 13 to 16. Now, look, these are difficult verses to really understand and get a grip of. But but what we can see clearly here is that this is a picture of a king who's coming to the end of his shelf life. You see that in verse 13. And then in verse 14, another is rising up through the ranks, a young man, we're told. He's come from nowhere. A man with, well, new ideas, great enthusiasm. And here's the point Barry Webb makes in verse 15. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. See, the king who was once so popular is dethroned. The king who once had many friends, many companions, many relationships finds them all deserting him. And now it's the king's successor who has a great following. He has many friends, loads of companions. He's not lonely. Verse 16 reads like this in the ESV. It doesn't come out quite as well in the NIV. In the ESV, it reads like this. There was no end to all the people all of whom he led. That is, the successor. No end to all the people he led. So now everyone's behind the young man, the successor to the throne. He's not short of friends and companions and relationships, is he? But then look at the second half of verse 16. Those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless a chasing after the wind. Do you see the point? Today's hero is tomorrow's villain. You can be Mr. Popular today, tomorrow no one's ever heard of you. Or they just don't like you. We've seen it in the news this week. Fred Goodwin stripped of his knighthood. Now whatever you think of that, it makes the point. We can be lauded one moment and the next. Simon Grayson, the Leeds United manager. Less than two years ago, led Leeds United to promotion from the First Division. He was the toast of the town. This week, sacked. We see it in business, we see it in sport and in politics. Look at prime ministers and presidents. Just three years ago, Barack Obama was the great hope of America. Now, well, he may get another term, but it's far from certain as his popularity wanes... That's what's going on in verses 13 to 16, isn't it? Under the sun. If we look to relationships to tell us what life is all about, forget it. Because one moment you can have the lot, and the next minute they can all be gone. So what do we do with this chapter? Here we see how broken relationships ruin life. How relationships are ruined by oppression, envy, laziness, loneliness. And the teacher is right. It is better, verse 9, to have companions. Two are better than one. And it is better, verse 6, to be content with enough than to be wanting to get more and more all the time because greed leaves me lonely and envy wrecks my relationships with others. Good relationships are good. The teacher is right. And Freddie Mercury is right. You can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. Success can bring huge popularity and riches, but for Freddie Mercury, it prevented him from having, in his words, the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. And he's right. Well, he's almost right. The one thing we all need is a loving, ongoing relationship, but not just any loving, ongoing relationship. We were made for a loving, ongoing relationship with the Lord God. But when you view life under the sun as the teacher does and as John Lennon insisted on doing, you'll never quite get this. Here is why the world is so right and yet so wrong. The world tells us that relationships are what life is all about. All you need is love. Love makes the world go round. I know I need to be in love. That's what people sang when I used to listen to the charts. I'm sorry, you'll have to do the translation. People still sing of the wonders of love today. Hollywood make films that touch the heartstrings and warm the heart. Love films of the best relationships. I'm not going to knock any of that. Longing to have a secure, loving relationship is right because we were made for that with the Lord God. But we can't see that living life under the sun. That's what the world is doing. They know. We know there's something about relationships that are good. We're just not looking in the right place. And that is why one came from beyond the Son, the Lord Jesus. He came to give us the one thing we all want, whether we realise it or not. He came to give us a loving, ongoing relationship with the Lord God. Turn with me as we close to John chapter 17 And verse 3, John chapter 17, page 1085. These are remarkable words. Uh, John 17 is all about Jesus praying. Firstly, he prays to his Father. And look what he says in verse 3. John 17, verse 3, now this is eternal life. Eternal life here, not only being life that goes on forever. Things can go on forever and be awful. It's not only life that goes on forever, although it is that, but a life that has a quality and substance and depth about it that is out of this world. Eternal life, yes, forever, but also deep and meaningful. Jesus said to his father, verse 3, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's the loving, ongoing relationship we were made for and so need. And because God is a God of relationship, because he is in relationship with himself, he is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because he is in relationship with himself, so relationship is at the very heart and center of everything. See, the world that God made, the God of relationship, has relationship right at his heart, because the world reflects his character that 's why loneliness is so awful, and why broken relationships are so devastating, and why it feels so bad when we fall out with others and say cruel things to each other and do things to shun others and ignore them and put them down and shut them up and leave them out and do them in. We were made for relationship with the Lord God, and the Lord God who is relational puts relationships at the heart of the world he made because relationships are so good. And that's why we need the one who came from beyond the sun because only Jesus can repair relationships. Only Jesus in his death on the cross can repair our relationship with God. That's what he's talking about here in John 17. Look at verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. The work Jesus came to do was to die on the cross, that we might know God verse 3 and have eternal life, a life of everlasting relationship with God. Only Jesus can give us that. And here's a here's the thing that really ties back in with Ecclesiastes. Only when we have that can we then have relationship with one another relationships that are repaired and made gloriously new. So look how Jesus goes on to pray. You see, in verses 6 to 16, he prayed for his disciples, the the ones who were around him at the time, and then he prayed for all who would follow him down through the years, you and me. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, not for the disciples alone, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. That's us. And what does he pray for all Christians? What's the first thing Jesus prays for all the Christians who are going to come after him? Verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. What a prayer. Jesus is praying for you and me, for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, for us to be one as Jesus and his Father are one. Jesus prays that we would have a unity and love between us that is as good as the unity and love between God the Father and God the Son. It's phenomenal. And that is life. Life in all its fullness. Life that has meaning and substance. We can't find it without God. We see glimpses of it in good relationships with others. It's what the teacher saw a glimpse of. He saw that broken relationships are horrible and why oppression and envy and and laziness and, and loneliness are awful. He saw that. And he saw that two are better than one. But because he was viewing life under the sun, he didn't realize that only in Christ can we know and enjoy and experience and learn to share with each other a relationship that is out of this world. And only in Christ can we look forward to it one day, perfect, in eternity, for eternity. Imagine there is a heaven. It's easy if you try. Imagine all the nations joined together as one. Nothing to kill or die for. All worship in the sun. Imagine no envy for possessions and no oppression squad. No longer greed or hunger. Everyone satisfied in God. You may say I'm a dreamer. But eternity will be as one. For Jesus Christ died for us. And so the deal is done. I'm not the greatest poet, but that was the best I could do.